Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. You may have noticed, but there's a lot going on in the world right now. Now, I have opinions about things, but I don't feel a need to voice my opinions about everything all the time. If you ask for my opinion, I'll share it, in which case I expect that you will not chastise me for telling you. Or like that time when a writer asked me to critique his manuscript, which I did, and his response to many of my comments was, well, that's just your opinion. Yup, which you asked for, dude. Next time he asked for my help, I was too busy. I figure a podcast in which I read fiction might be a place people come to to not listen to someone's opinions about the world. More of an escape. Isn't that what art has been providing these last months? Coping mechanisms, human connection, escapes to places that provide humor or adventure, keep our mind off things. Today, I will share my opinion about a thing that is not even a little bit earth-shattering. In fact, if you want to just skip ahead and get on with the story, because you can't wait to find out what's happening to Kier, who we left in rather a tight spot last week, go right ahead. I would be honored. For those who stick around, I have strong opinions on TV adaptations of Agatha Christie novels. Now, I love murder mysteries, and Matt and I often watch them on TV of an evening. Lately, Knowledge Network, that's BC's public television station, Knowledge has been showing the series of Miss Marple Mysteries starring Julia McKenzie. Now, Joan Hickson is my favorite Miss Marple, by the way. She's just so, she, she so beautifully portrays that frail old woman that people would underestimate and tell all their secrets to. Um, Julia McKenzie just seems to me to be too sturdy. In these productions, you can tell when an episode is based on a book that actually is a Miss Marple story, and when they have inserted her into a story, the stories Miss Marple is actually in are very good. The others... Well, it seems like they they combine stories and just kind of stick Miss Marple in where it would otherwise be someone else's point of view. Um, and they invariably become these nutty, convoluted tales that leave you exhausted and confused by the end. And Matt and I sit there and look at each other and go, huh? Recently, we saw The Secret of Chimneys which bore so little resemblance to the book, I wondered how they had the nerve to use that title. Why not just use a different story? It is irksome. I don't know. If you're going to make such significant changes, then you'd better have a good reason for it. And I haven't thought of one. So what are your favorite or least favorite TV or film adaptations? Or if there's more than one version of a story, so you get to see more than one actor play a role, which is your favorite? Um, jot them down in the comments or on the Totally Fantastic Title Facebook page. Or stick around after this chapter and I'll tell you of a new plan I have afoot. It'll be super exciting. I'm serious. But now it's time to get on with Chapter 12. Gatekeeper's Key by Krista Wallace. Chapter 12, A Vanishing Act. 
For two hours, Janik lay still, waiting for Fennel and Jaskelin to return from their search for the trail of Kier's captors. They had ridden for a painful half-hour in which Janik's head became addled with dizziness before the elf lost the trail and they were forced to stop. Derry had stayed with Janik, whose inner rage simmered at being treated like a powerless wretch. Janik hadn't objected when Derry offered him one of Kian's healing potions. The ogre-inflicted pain peened in his head, and his left eye throbbed. The physicer's special brew eased his head a little, but it did nothing for the dull ache that had settled just below his ribs. It was a cold, leaden ache, an icy fist around his heart that squeezed each time Janik opened his eyes and could see with only one. With the other, he could see nothing but changes in light. From his propped position, Janik had watched Derry move around the camp, trying to keep busy, and his mind flitted about like a slow-motion passing of his life before his eyes. The exhilaration of a well-timed swipe with his battle-axe, the warm, well-measured handshake of Lord Valraker, with gratitude and congratulations in his grey eyes, just as ingenuous and unaffected as his words, the breathtaking beauty of Rael Ephalon as she sang Awaken in the Heath Concert Hall. Surely it was directed right to him. Kier Halladin's fierce determination and the strength of the blows he countered with sweat trickling down his back. What bloody good was a one-eyed fighter? Janik's desire to snatch up his battle-axe and strike something with unparalleled ferocity was almost more than he could withstand. When the two finally returned, and Jaskelin said, Nothing. His voice held a note of despair that Janik had known of him only once before. That time Janik had shared in his grief. This time the dwarf felt quite differently. As Fennel gave the details, Janik gazed up at him, straining to see more than shadows out of his left eye. But the pain intensified as he stared, and soon he had to close it. It did not stop his meditating on revenge. As long as Derry had known Fennel, the elf had never been less sanguine in either body or voice. As he reported the condition of the trail, it was as if he were reporting the destruction of his hometown. The hard-packed earth, Fennel said, coupled with the light gusts of wind, ravaged many signs of the horses passing. The dust shifted continually, and even dismounting to check more closely had yielded nothing. The frustrated tracker had been forced to admit defeat when he saw the herd of antelope roaming the plain. The trail was obliterated. He was foiled. "'We could carry on west,' Fennel said doubtfully, "'but we have no way of knowing if we're on the right track. We could end up miles away and never find her.' Derry squinted in the tree-filtered sunlight, desperate for some sort of direction. Precious time was already lost, and the sun did not slow its crawl across the sky. His fear for Kier redoubled, his imagination roiling like floodwaters. Helpless she was not. Derry of all people knew, but even she had limits. Ten men and no weapon. Ronav Malachite, a man whose hunger for greatness made him ruthless, waited at the end of her road. Kier would not be meek. He would beat her, bloody her, even kill her. Derry pictured her dark gaze scrutinizing him on the stairs the night they met, her laugh as she told a joke at supper last night. Is that the last time? The compulsion to leap onto Donegal's back and pursue her was so strong that the restraint made him feel sick to his stomach. Derry glanced sidelong at Janik, rubbed his head, and cursed violently. The others waited tentatively for orders. A stone sat within kicking distance, taunting him. Derry clenched his teeth and pulled his gaze away from it. 
Janik lay there silently, uncaring, wallowing in his own selfish world of self-pity, yet he was here and Kier was not, and the dwarf's left eye was filled with a pool of blood. Derry gave in. Let's go northwest to Stony Hill. We've got to get Janik to a healer. Mayhap we'll learn something of Ronav's whereabouts, so we'll know where to go. Not quite under his breath, he added, We've got to find her. We can't just leave her to— Recognizing his men were waiting for him, Derry gestured, and they hastened to pack up camp. He remembered something and called, Fennel. The elf approached him, looking like a chastened child. Fennel, I apologize for my impatience earlier. You were doing your job, doing it well. It was selfish of me to forget how this would affect us all. The elf nodded, but the expression on his face did not transform into relief. Instead, he paled. He opened his mouth to speak, hesitated, and tried again. Captain, I— <sighs> He breathed deeply and straightened. Derry had to look up. This is all my fault. No, Fennel, don't think that. Yes, yes, it is. See, there was this man with a lopsided face in the general store in Shale when I was buying Kier's supplies. He asked all sorts of questions. I thought he was just being friendly. I— well, I told him. Derry stared at him, his heart plummeting. What did you tell him? He said it looked like I was prepping for a journey. I said we were heading north, looking for some information for Valraker. I think I even told him we'd be leaving the next day. Jaskelin sighed heavily. Derry glared at the idiot elf and wondered why he'd spoken to Valraker about Kier's suitability in the group. Did you mention Nenya? No, I definitely didn't. Derry, I'm sorry. I, I thought I was being charitable. He seemed so friendly, and you have no idea how proud it makes me to be able to say I work for Val- It makes you proud. Derry hadn't felt this kind of wrench to his gut since they'd told him his sisters had gone missing. His breath came out in a slow hiss. <sighs> Brilliant, Fennel. The elf flinched as though he'd threatened to hit him. I'm sorry. The words squeezed out between taut lips. Just hope Kier's still alive for you to tell her that. Derry walked away before he yielded to the urge to wallop him. Derry had hoped to reach Stony Hill by mid-afternoon, but circumstances did not allow it. He had never been so close to losing control— Janik could not ride for more than an hour before the pressure in his eye became too much. The ogre's club had also caused bouts of dizziness, and he needed frequent rests. Derry had suggested a litter, but the cantankerous dwarf had refused to be toted like some gelded, mewling infant. Derry conceded that even with the stops, riding was faster than it would be to carry over twenty stone of dwarven bulk. They had briefly discussed Jaskelin's healing spell, but dismissed it almost immediately. The risk was too great of the spell simply fixing the eye in its damaged position without actually solving the underlying problem. That would prevent a healer from ever being able to mend it. The sun brushed the tops of the Ptarmigan Mountains far to their left, and they slogged through dogwood and willow-dotted marshland in search of a decent path. Fennel rode in a shamed silence at the rear of the party, and Derry did not have the strength to ask him to take the lead. His feet were soaked, he had a stabbing pain in his belly from not eating much that day, and his head ached. Yet he must not complain. Somewhere in the west, Kier was in the hands of the enemy. 
Captain! It was the first time Derry had heard Fennel's voice since the morning. It must be important. He called a halt and looked past Jaskelin and Janik to where Fennel sat astride layout, peering into the trees. Hm? Do you smell that? Derry was surprised Fennel could smell anything over his own odor, but sniffed the air himself. It took him a moment, but then he detected it. As if we haven't problems enough. We're downwind of him, or he'd be after us already. Derry dismounted. You go check it out while I get Janik down. Fennel obliged, bow in hand. What the devil is it? the dwarf said. Keep your voice down. Their hearing isn't anything to boast about, but he'll hear you if you rail on. Derry and Jaskelin lowered Janik to the ground, where the dwarf grasped the cinch strap for support. What is it, Captain? Jaskelin asked in subdued tones. A bloody fen troll. Janik let out a growl. Get my axe and I'll be on him! You'll do no such thing. Derry grabbed Janik's arm, but the dwarf flung him off, whacking him on the shoulder. Janik stumbled, but found the straps holding his battle axe in place. Whoa there, Janik! Jaskelin said, also trying to restrain him. I'm not a gods be damned horse, don't you woe me! I'm a fighter, and I'm going to fight! You do, and you'll never fight again, Derry said, working with Jaskelin to pinion the dwarf's tree-limb arms. Then it'll be my final showdown! He kicked Derry, who yelled and toppled into the muck. Jaskelin, do something! A few muttered words and a flash later, Janik lay still, his right arm and leg in a puddle of murky water. He was too heavy for the two of them to drag him out of it, so they left him. His good eye screamed silently at them, but his mouth, frozen mid-yell, couldn't voice his outrage. "'I apologize, Janik, but you left us no option.' Derry unsheathed his sword, and Jaskelin followed him toward the trees. "'How long?' Derry asked. Jaskelin shrugged. "'Maybe a quarter of an hour. I had no idea we had so many half-wits in the company.' Jaskelin began a cross-reply, but Fennel came running out of the willows— He's only a youth, but a hungry one, he said, not even a little out of breath. I could hear you all hollering, and so could he. He's confused, because I fired an arrow at a tree behind him, and he doesn't know which way to go, but he'll find us soon enough. His enthusiasm for the challenge had loosened his tongue again. How far? Derry asked. About two hundred paces beyond that big willow there, Fennel pointed, his eyes stabbing back and forth into the shadowy scrub brush. Can't we just skirt around the area and avoid him? Jaskelin put in. Not likely, Derry said. He's heard us already, and the instant he catches our scent, he'll follow us relentlessly until he tastes flesh, no matter where we go. Could we draw it out somehow? offered Jaskelin. Derry thought rapidly. Fennel, you get back in beyond him and drive him toward us. Jaskelin, you and I'll have to be thorough. They only take a few seconds to begin regeneration. You'll need to finish him off. Fennel led them into the willows. They picked their way slowly, striving for noiselessness. Ten minutes later, Fennel held up his hand for them to stop, his keen eyes scanning the shadows ahead. "'It's behind that large maple,' he whispered. "'We're downwind. Wait here, and I'll go flush him out.' In seconds, Fennel had disappeared. "'What if it charges Fennel instead?' muttered Jaskelin. "'I hope he runs fast,' Derry replied." They spread out, and Derry crouched low in the grasses, his arse dipping into water. He heard the twang of Fennel's bow three times in such quick succession they were all but simultaneous. 
There was a loud grunt, then a bellow as the troll staggered backwards into his view, three shafts jutting out of its short, dense hair. It crouched beside the maple and pulled them from its midsection. More arrows whipped past the troll, and some thudded into the tree. Its eyes darted wildly around, thinking there were several archers attacking, and tipped its snout to the air. Finally, the troll found a scent. It lumbered toward Fennel, who dashed across the soggy ground in the direction of Jeskelin, then dropped behind the brush out of its sight. Derry's heartbeat rushed as the troll came straight at them. In search of the elf, the monster passed the humans and pulled up astonished as their scent reached it. Derry stepped out from the brush and attacked. The troll swiped with one arm and clopped Derry a good one on the same shoulder Janik had hit. Crossly, Derry swept at it again. In the meantime, Fennel charged from behind. Both man and elf struck solid blows, then dropped to the ground. The stunned troll had only a moment to be confused. Flailing its horns at the twilight sky, its wounds had no time to regenerate before it was hit with a ball of fire two feet in diameter, the only weapon that would terminate it. Derry crawled away as the troll turned into a living torch. It cried out in horror, but fell and sank into the boggy ground, a burned and very dead husk. Shoulder aching and soaking from top to bottom, Derry made his way back to the horses where Janik was just coming out of the spell that had frozen him in place. He flexed his hands and feet, and though he could move his jaw, it was stiff and the lips and tongue were not quite ready for speech. It didn't stop him trying. What you think he caught he? He shook his shoulders, loosening them. Jeskelin and Fennel came up, both soaked to the skin from lying low in the marsh. "'What was I thinking in stopping you?' Derry clarified, impatiently cleaning his sword. "'Like it or not, Janik, even injured, you're more useful to us alive than dead. I can't have you throwing yourself away just to prove you're still capable of it. We'll get through this, all of us.' Fennel said nothing, and cleaned off the few arrows he'd retrieved. The heads were blunted, but at least two of the shafts would be reusable. He returned those to his arrow bag. The others would be kindling.' Janik pointed at him, but spoke to Derry. "'You blame him for all this. He is something dumb.' He shook his head and managed to roll onto his side. "'Not his fault. Hers.' He pushed his knees up and pushed himself up. Derry didn't help him, but slammed his sword into its sheath. Janik pushed through the stiffness to form words. "'I said all along that she had no place in his company.' I said she was nothing but trouble. He blew through his lips, stretched his mouth, and carried on. What use is she to us? Her problems have become my problems. It's her own damn fault she got took, and if I never fight again, it'll be her damn fault too. He clutched his saddle, vibrating from his effort. Derry felt as if he were the one who'd been hit by a freeze spell. Hand on Donegal's flank, head on his hand, numb throughout, as if filled with cotton wool. In one short day, he'd lost control of everything. Despair was an insidious poison, breaking down company morale like termites destroying a house from the inside. Derry was the captain. He knew if he did not take command now and counteract the poison, they would fall apart. The mission would fail. Failure was not an option, but they had to find Kier first. If they didn't, Derry would not be able to face Dunveran, no matter how much success they might have in Nenya. I'm going to presume you are joking, Derry said quietly, because if I do not, I will likely kill you myself. 
He looked around at them all, staring at him expectantly. Let's move. We are going to Stony Hill. Now let's get the hell out of this muck. Kier had long since stopped peering behind her. The sun was setting behind the mountain in front of them as they finally reached the first of the trees that embraced the foothills. A couple of hours later, with darkness settled around them, they came upon a cabin that was built up against the side of the hill. With trees all around, the house resembled that of a trapper. Though she could not see a chimney in the dark, the smell of smoke and roasting meat reminded Kier that her porridge was a distant memory. The horses drew up alongside the house, and the men tied them to the trees, alongside several others. There was no stable or corral to be seen. Giles dismounted, pulling her down with him, not shoving her to the ground, con-style. She checked an impulse to thank him for his gentlemanly behavior, mainly because her teeth would have chattered if her jaw weren't clamped shut. Night seeped through her tunic. Trembling just a little with the chill or nerves, she waited for someone to tell her what to do. Con glanced at her, then cocked his head at Giles and a heavy-set man called Tob. Con swaggered on ahead. Kier was given a shove that nearly knocked her down, but she didn't give them the pleasure of seeing her fall. She caught herself and kept her footing. My, she's a proud one, ain't she? Tob said. We'll see how long that lasts, said Giles. He's bluffing. She stepped over the threshold as directed. The house was deceptively small on the outside. It was actually set into the hillside, so the front room was just an entryway into a banquet hall. Kier's heart sank when she saw the gathering before her. The party that had come to fetch her was about one-quarter contingent. The odds against her stacked higher. Two or three pots simmered on the large fire in the center of the room, cooking whatever cabbagey-smelling dishes would accompany the fat pig that turned on the spit, cranked by a small boy. The fire sucked away the chill of outdoors. The smoke rose obediently twenty feet up to a hole in a ceiling she could barely see. A few torches clung to the walls like oversized stick insects, adding their pitchy smoke and feeble light to that of the fire. The men helped themselves to tankards of beer from a massive keg. Giles and Tob stopped Kier, hands still tied in front, at the end of a trestle table, and they sat down to await orders. Con approached a low dais at the front end of the room, set apart from the rest of the circle. Chief Ronav was draped on an excessively grandiose chair. A woman handed him a bowl, and he pinched her rump as she moved away. It didn't faze her. Ronav dug into his meal as Con spoke to him, hooking his thumb in Kier's direction. Kier stood waiting, her eyes never leaving the chief. Nice place, she remarked to her guards approvingly. Cozy atmosphere. Right plucky, ain't you? Tob said. Con signaled to her guards, and the two men rose to grab her arms. They led her across the room to stand in front of the chief, then left her. The chief ignored her as he finished slurping up the last of his dinner. She raised her eyebrows with indignation, trying to unnerve me. His dark hair was thinning on top, and his skin looked sallow as if he didn't get enough sun. The way he sat, she couldn't guess at his height, but his long legs led her to believe he was fairly tall. His robes had once been fancy and stylish, but were worn, with faded colors, some vestige of class he was trying to cling to. They were too large for him, as if he'd removed them from some lord whose life he'd taken while pillaging his lands and household and raping his women. 
Ronav had thin, soft-looking lips that brought to Kier's mind a repellent youth who had tried to kiss her when she was fourteen, and she wondered what attribute he possessed that had raised him up to such a level. To her mind, it couldn't be a natural leadership quality. Setting his bowl aside, he finally appraised her expectantly through pale, steely eyes. She stared right back at him. This was his party, let him speak first. At any rate, she didn't know what he wanted. Her heart beat on her ribs like it was trying to escape. After a time, he finally spoke with a voice that was filled with authority but softened by a smooth charm. So this is the little girl who has eluded us for so long. Kier knew he was trying to rankle her and didn't oblige him. Khan, he called. She doesn't look at all as fierce as you led us to believe. Khan glared at him. I have been looking forward to meeting this fearsome warrior. Ronav chuckled, then turned his oily smile at Kier. Do you know who I am? Ronav Malachite, she said in a clear, confident voice. Ah, my reputation precedes me, I see. As does mine, it would seem, she replied. Indeed. Yet you have the advantage, my dear, for I do not know who you are. It seems rude to not properly address you, a guest in my house. My name is Kier Halliden. And where are you from? That hardly matters, since my actions have nothing to do with you prior to the incident in Wanaka. She hoped her heartbeat was not visible. Ah, yes, the incident in Wanaka, he said, a hint of acerbity sneaking out from behind the charm. But we will get to that later. Khan joined them, leaning against the back of Ronav's chair to stare at Kier with triumphant hatred. You have created quite a stir amongst my council, you know, Ronav continued with a glance up at his right-hand man. A lofty name for a bunch of bandits, Kier thought without changing her expression. You must be something really special, a young girl, yet you are personally responsible for the deaths of four of my men. Your men attacked me, so I killed them. What exactly did you expect? Nothing less from such a surprisingly skilled fighter as yourself. Khan grunted. If he's trying to swell my head to win me over, it's not working, she thought. I am extremely upset that Simon was killed. Do you know what that means, my dear girl? That means you have angered me. And if you choose not to cooperate with me, you will not have a pleasant time here. You must not think that you will be treated with the respect that is usually due a gifted fighter like yourself. Kier looked at him levelly. I would never expect it of you. Khan, at least, picked up on her subtle jibe. He stepped forward and gave her the back of his brawny hand across the mouth. With the sudden taste of blood, she staggered, but kept her footing. A crash of glass from the other side of the hall was followed by a cheer. The rest of the hall continued their party, oblivious to the goings-on at the front of the room. That looked like it felt good, Con, Ronav said. You see what I mean, Kier Halladin. My men and I are not to be trifled with. So now, he said, lowering his voice, what have you done with my property? She considered the question. If he meant the cart, she hadn't touched it. He probably meant the chest, but rules were rules. The chest had been in Simon's possession and was therefore now her property regardless of who had paid for it. If Ronav were a reasonable individual, she might be more open to negotiation. I know nothing of your property. 
There were some goods that Simon was bringing to me. Your cart is in the hands of Wanaka's sheriff now, she said. I don't mean the cart. There was a small box. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, you mean the armband, she slurred over her rapidly swelling lip. I left it in shale with an apothecary. It's mine now, so I want to know what it is. Ronav looked unimpressed. His nostrils flared. Never mind, as you say, by rules of combat, it belongs to you. He pursed his fishy lips, which made her shudder because he'd agreed too readily and she didn't know what he was thinking. What is it you know about our plans? She shook her head. Nothing. Khan backhanded her again. She felt blood trickling down her chin. Liar! Ronav shifted in his seat and drummed his fingers on the arm of the chair. What do you know? he repeated more insistently. She exhaled impatiently. Listen! I'd never even heard of you when Khan said your name. Sorry, but you're just not as notorious as you'd like to think. Khan kneed her in the gut so her stomach rammed into her lungs, and she doubled over, gasping. <gasps> her knees hit the stone floor with a jolt that sent sharp pain up her back. Fear escaped its confines then, and she began to tremble. She got shakily to her feet. Look! she said hoarsely, pleading in her voice in spite of her effort to contain her fear. I'd have thought nothing of it except that ever since I killed Simon, your men keep attacking me. Why couldn't you have just let it go? Why did you kill him? Kier sighed. I was enjoying a beer, and he demanded I go to bed with him, so I challenged him. What would you have done in my position? You expect me to believe that? No, I don't. He cheated, all right? It was a legal duel, all public and proper. He drew early and flung a knife after there was an obvious winner, so I killed him. You are one of Val Raker's puppets, and you expect me to believe that you did not kill my man under his orders? Believe whatever you want. Yes, Val Raker was there, but I didn't even know who he was until afterward. Actually, it was as a result of that fight that Valraker asked me to join him. Simon died for a worthy cause. Ah! She cried out as Khan hit her again. Ears ringing, she found herself on the floor. My dear Kier, please tell me what you are doing for Valraker. He licked a drop of spittle from the corner of his mouth. Where has he sent you? Ronav prodded, his voice insipidly quiet. What is required of you? On all fours, she spoke over a swollen lip. It has nothing to do with you. How do you know? he asked casually. It struck her that it may very well have everything to do with him. Look at her, Con remarked with a sneer. Spouting off comments, brassy as hell until I hits her, and when it matters, she finally thinks to hold her tongue. Hmm, maybe she likes it, Ronav said, his index finger drawing thoughtful circles around his clean-shaven chin. You know, rather than demand the return of my property, I shall simply have to regain their value from you. You don't mind paying a small sum now, do you? But you have no money. No matter, you are a worthy warrior, so we will take it out of that worth. Hope leaped into her heart. He saw her as an asset. Working for him would give her a chance. 
Ronav cocked his head, and suddenly the whole room moved as if he'd suggested a dance. Con yelled, Post! and hauled her to her feet. He stank like stale solidwood and rotting teeth. Kier looked at Ronav's self-satisfied gaze with confusion and stumbled as Con wrenched her around and dragged her to the center of the room. The men were positioning a tall post, braced at the foot, with an iron ring driven into it. She tried to wriggle away, but Con only held her tighter. Fear tasted like bile in her throat. Protest would be in vain, as would divulging information now. These men no longer cared about her mission. Within seconds, her arms were above her head and tied to the ring. Someone yanked her tunic up, bearing her back. Her head now covered, she couldn't even strain her neck around to see what they were doing. She had a feeling she already knew. The reality of her complete and utter helplessness finally hit her like a waterfall. Her friends were not coming. She was in a room full of brutal men. How could she have thought she could possibly defend herself? Fool! She heard the snap of a whip and searing pain clawed at her skin. She screamed. One. Again the lash cracked against her. Two. And again. Three. Was that Ronav's voice counting, or her own? Four. Five. Six. Each time she cried out, the men cheered. She clenched her jaw until her teeth felt like they might break. Don't satisfy them. She felt her own warm blood trickling. She tried to brace herself, but every muscle in her body seized with each snap, and she sagged with agony, her arms wanting to wrench from her shoulders. The wielder of the whip varied the tempo of his cracks, not allowing her to achieve any kind of rhythm with her breathing. A closed-mouthed scream escaped. She had lost count. What a fool! Why couldn't she have kept her mouth shut? Maybe they'd have thrown her in a cell somewhere, but perhaps it wouldn't have come to this. Crack! Her body slammed against the post as she lost her footing. Blood streamed down her back now. It was impossible not to cry out. "'Do you suppose she'd face me with such boldness now?' Ronav asked the room at large. "'Such a fearsome warrior, sobbing like an infant.' The cheering, jeering, and laughter continued as if she were the star of a comedic play. His voice softly oozed. Valraker will be disappointed in you for being so... weak. What a waste of his time. From somewhere deep down, she felt a determination simmer, and she planted her feet more firmly. Was that twenty? Ronav cooed in the back of her mind, and yet she still looks so bold, so sturdy... Let's have another ten. Crack! 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 Searing, burning, scorching, the smell of her own blood and sweat, and fear. The men's voices had distorted into a ringing and buzzing in her ears. Kier sobbed in spite of herself, and her tears stung the gashes on her face. Her wrists bled from twisting against the ropes. She had been too cocky. Giles had warned her, and she'd brushed him off. In her mind, she heard Brendau's voice— Show all opponents the respect of never underestimating them. Even Brendau seemed to be laughing at her. He'd spent countless hours training her for... for this? What a waste of his time. Sobs gusted out of her with each lash. She was beyond pain, beyond agony. The eight boys who'd attacked her in the schoolyard took a second run at her. Only they were no longer boys, just a few weeks ago. Still not as trained as she, but bigger, stronger, and drunkenly intent on getting their own back. 
on her way home, tired from an intense training session, relaxed after a few drinks with her mates. They'd ambushed her in the lane. With her sword in hand, she was not helpless. Her medallion flaring with the warmth of the fear she wrestled under control, she drew, and with the advantage of being in a crowded space between buildings, made quick work of them. She killed none of them, but left them hurting. One week later, she left Reth. With her sword in hand, she was not helpless. Ronav's voice, the cheers of his men, were a buzzing in her head. She was on her own. They would kill her. Dara and the others were headed north. She was just not worth the effort. The mission was more important. If she died now, nobody would miss her. Just let it end. She gave in and drooped against the post. Cheers erupted, and they seemed like echoes all around her and within her, as if she were in a vast cave. She felt a yank, and her hands were free from the iron ring. She slipped and crumpled ungracefully to the floor. She struggled to pull her tunic down, though it sent flames of pain through her body. Her eyes flickered open, and she watched her blood stir up the dirt, blend with it, and form a muddy whorl. Her eyes closed. Voices and clapping and cheering buzzed around her head like flies. Ronav's voice stood out a solo amid the cacophony. So, young warrior, do you have anything to say now? Her breaths came short and ragged. <sighs> An agonizing wallop to her side like a blow with a tree trunk. Khan's boot. She rolled over, moaning, arms still clenched to her head. She hadn't the strength to kick or struggle. Fine, fine. Ronav had won. There was nothing more they could do to her now. Ronav's voice again. She is still beautiful, do you not think so? Kier craned her neck so she could see her enemy. He shifted to a more comfortable position, glancing over at his man. The trouble with flogging is that the wounds, even after they have healed, remain hidden. His voice was like a serpent's, and the way he alternated sidelong looks at her and at Khan froze what was left of her blood. The other danger here is that even after she has healed— he leaned forward slightly. She will still be a nuisance, still able to wield a sword, still able to attack, to kill. There was an uproar of cheering as the demons clambered over each other like snarling wolves to get closer. Khan stepped forward, his half-grin leering down at her. Ronav urged him on in a sing-song voice. What do you suppose we could do about that? Her eyes welled, and she curled up tighter on her side. Her back felt like she'd been branded a hundred times. To render her virtually useless. No. Khan sank onto his knees, straddling her bloody form. She clutched her arms to herself, but he forcibly pushed her onto her back. She screamed, arching her spine to lift the lacerations not completely covered by her tunic off the ground. He shoved her down, and the dirt on the floor drove its grit into her wounds. Khan grabbed her right arm. Hold her, he growled, and Giles and Tob happily obliged. One grabbed her left arm, and the other pinned her right shoulder down. Struggling brought only agony, so she lay still. Khan caressed her hand, and she yanked, desperate to get it away from him. But he clutched it, and the pain sent a new dread to every muscle. She tried to kick, but he sat on her. You're mine now, to throw in a room down below where I can take you whenever I want. He leaned down to her, his fetid skin and breath too close. You'll never see the light of day again. 
She turned her head from side to side, trying to avoid him, but he grabbed her face in one big, filthy hand and thrust his tongue into her mouth. She gagged. He backhanded her without restraint, a new cut formed over a swollen bruise. He took her thumb in his fingers. And soon you'll be useless to anyone but me. By the gods! No! He was right. She would be able to wield no weapon, to hold nothing at all, not even a beggar's tin cup. Useless. Dread cranked each muscle as taut as a crossbow. Somewhere, Kier could hear Ronav's despicable chuckle. Con drew a knife from somewhere and turned it over where she could see it. Kier wriggled and struggled despite the torturous gashes on her back. Con slammed her hand on the ground, fingers together, but her thumb neatly separated. Kier screamed in rage. Tears streamed down her cheeks and into her hair. But something had caught Con's attention. He was staring, not at her, but down around her hip. A whole new fear seized her as she remembered what she had tucked into her pocket. The chain had slipped out onto the floor. She squirmed as if that would prevent his fingertips from grasping it. He lifted the chain, and despair was a dagger in her heart as she felt the medallion slide out of the pocket. She stiffened and struggled some more. No, no, not that! No! she cried. He lifted it, and it swung gently, tantalizingly above her. Well, well, what have we here? he said. A hush descended on the room. His greedy eyes flashed with the recognition of value. Such an unusual metal, such a large violet jewel in the center. To him, it was wealth and power over her. To Kier, it was her lifeline, the one and only connection with her past, a single clue to her identity, as precious to her as her arm, as the thumb that made it a sword arm. A growl forced itself out of her throat. She skewered him with an enraged glare. He scoffed at her. He held it up to show his comrades his treasure. He reached with his other thumb and index finger to touch the large jewel that centered the medallion. The blood rushing through her ears blocked the sound of the room. You will not have it! A surprising thing happened. A small explosion threw Con backwards, screaming in terror and pain. Kier's guards jumped back. The medallion fell onto her belly and she snatched it. It was hot, but did not burn her hand. She pushed herself onto her side and up onto one elbow to witness the spectacular display. Khan was hurled to the ground and his body was licked by tongues of fire. Though he was no longer touching it, bolts of lightning shot from the jewel in the medallion and leaped for him as if they had been aimed at their last enemy in the world and were intent on retribution. The crowd of men scrambled back. Some even fled in horror. Ronav struggled out of his chair and crouched behind it to shield himself from the sight of the lightning jolting through Khan's body. The bolts visibly outlined every bone and muscle, and as they died down, Khan's blackened body lay like a charred log in the fire. The nauseating stench of burned flesh took her breath away. She was free from her captors for a moment. Now was her chance to run— but they'd left her barely able to pathetically drag herself across the ground. She sobbed with terror. I've got to get out of here, to find Derry. A shimmer of light, unnoticed by anyone but herself, seemed to shudder through not the earth, but the very air she breathed. It formed the shape of an archway, and was no more than a brief, quiet glow. 
Kier drew the medallion's chain over her head. She dug her fingernails into the edge of a stone, dragging herself into a desperate crawl. No sooner had the shimmer appeared than it was gone, and Kier with it. Far in the northern wastelands of Rydris, someone stirred. Oh, now that is interesting. Khan's body still sparked. His charred eyes were open, blackened and sucked dry, and even in death his expression was frozen in utter horror. His screams still echoed throughout the hall. The men had been struck dumb in those few short seconds. When the sound finally died away, no one knew what to do. Even Ronav, their esteemed leader, had nothing to say as he peered out from behind his chair. They were afraid to touch Khan lest he should crumble to cinders before their eyes. The silence was splintered by a cry. She's gone! Giles was pointing to where Kier had lain. That got them moving. A few ran to the door, and others were happy to escape the scene and see if she had gone elsewhere in the caverns off the main hall. They quickly realized they had somehow lost her again. She could not have run far or fast in her physical state. There was no evidence of her going into the yard, and all the horses were still there. There was no sign whatsoever that she had even moved from that spot where smatterings of blood smeared the floor. She had vanished. They all gathered and looked at Ronav expectantly. His face was stricken. The hush was deadly. Ronav let out a scream of fury that quaked through the hall and into the caverns beyond. Idiot! he shrieked. He bashed his hip on the chair as he stepped around it. He kicked Khan's body with all his force, scattering ashes everywhere so they fell through the air like black snowflakes. Charred bones skittered across the floor. Ronav's men screamed and feverishly brushed off the ashes of their dead comrade. Jaskelin had been on watch for about an hour. He paused in his rounds next to Kier's horse within the aura of the animal's warmth. The others slept uneasily, disturbed by their imaginations. They'd found their way out of the marshes, but had had to stop for frequent rests. Janik was in considerable discomfort with his eye, and Jaskelin himself had turned an ankle in the wetland. The going had been slower than plowing through snowdrifts, and Jaskelin had watched Derry's inner battle play out on his face before he finally called a halt for the night with the heaviest of spirits. Jaskelin's ankle pain had eased, but he still treated it tenderly. He reached up and combed the silky mane of Kier's horse, reawakening a memory of thicker fur entwined in his fingers, feeling the love emanating from her body as he ran his hand through fur that smoothed into soft skin when she changed form. He lifted his hand from the horse's hair. That decade-old memory might bring a smile to his lips, but it would not help him stay focused here and now. He stroked the horse's neck. Did the beast wonder where his rider was? Did he feel, the way most of them did, it seemed, something was missing? Kier had a presence that filled empty spaces like water poured into a jug of pebbles. However new to the group she was, with her the company felt complete. Trevile had predicted her abduction. There had been nothing in his chain reading to suggest her return. Jaskelin stroked Trigg's neck, feeling tired. There hardly was a point to keeping watch. A tremor buckled his knees. It was followed instantly by a quiet shuffle and a moaning sound from the other side of the fire. Intruder! he cried, alerting the others, and dashed across the clearing, his hand raised. 
A split second after the shimmering had appeared, it was gone, and Kier found herself lying in the dirt on the edge of the light of a campfire, whose she hadn't a clue, so she instinctively grabbed for her only weapon, her boot dagger, and quickly remembered it had been taken. She winced and tried to stifle a moan. A warning cry erupted, and she knew her presence had been detected. I can't, I can't do this. Silhouetted figures were coming at her, a sword, a knocked arrow pointed at her. Please, she managed only a whisper. Please. That's it for Chapter 12. Tune in next week to find out what happens, of course, and you will get to meet Ronaf's boss. Hey, that new plan I was telling you about. Brace yourself. Are you ready? I'm starting a newsletter. Bet you've never heard that before. If you're interested in receiving my newsletter, please drop an email to, all one word, totallyfantastictitle at gmail.com. We'll see where that goes. Then I can keep you posted on things I'm up to, projects I'm working on, exciting news I have, <laughs> all the cons I'm not attending. <laughs> and then if you have any questions or anything, that would be a good way to communicate those. And after a while, if I collect a whole bunch, then I'll, I'll take some time, one episode, and uh, answer a bunch. Have a little bit of a Q&A. I promise I won't bombard you. I will only write when there's something of interest to report. So, I don't know. Let's, let's get it going and see what happens. And let me remind you to check out the Totally Fantastic Title Facebook page where I've got things like photographs. I've posted a list of each of the characters you meet per chapter and fun stuff like that. So, there you go. That's about it for this time. So, thanks for listening. Thanks to my family, Matt, David, Heather, and Maggie. <laughs> Thank you to David and Sharon. Thanks to the original six. Thanks to you for listening. Now, go be fantastic.